Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler and in today's episode we're going to be talking all about well-being at work. We're going to be talking about positive psychology and the role that coaching can play and it's my great pleasure to say that joining me today is my friend and founder of the Positivity Institute, Dr. Susie Green. Great to be here, Dan. So uh, you and I, I think, first met probably going on about 10 years ago now while I was still a teacher and I attended um, a workshop that you were running yes. um, about positive psychology um, in education. So I've, I've known you for quite a long time and I've followed your work for, uh, you know, obviously at least a decade. But for those people who haven't had, um, you know, come across your work, I wonder if you could just uh, sort of give us the, the backstory, if yeah. you like, of, of how you became to be the, the founder of the Positivity Institute. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it started with uh, training as a clinical psychologist. So, but fairly early on in my career, even though I was working clinically, working in a psychiatric clinic, I worked out that I personally didn't think I could do that sort of work all day, every day. We need it, obviously, but it possibly wasn't the best fit for me. I used to get in trouble for having too much laughter coming from my therapy room. <laughs> so that's sort of an indication that perhaps it wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, and then I guess by a series of fortunate events or synchronicity is what Jung referred to yeah. it, I would uh, say, I've been on this incredible journey just as the movement of positive psychology started, I've sort of grown up with it and the complementary field of coaching psychology. Mm. So I was uh, really fortunate to be able to teach positive psych at Sydney Uni through the coaching psychology unit for 10 years. Um, met some incredible students during that time from very diverse backgrounds. And uh, I've written and published on the integration of positive psych and coaching psychology uh, in various, uh, I guess, particularly the, the scientific peer review press. Yep. Uh, so it's something I'm passionate about. And I've also had a calling, if you like. Uh, that's how I see it now, the older I get, um, in the education area, which is an area I hadn't planned on working in. Mm. Uh, and in fact, a couple of times in previous years, I've thought about or trying to withdraw a little. And every time I do, I get pulled back into mm. it. So the posed stuff is a, a passion of mine, yep. but we also... The majority of our work is done in the corporate sector or the broader workplace sector. Yeah. So the, the positive education is the, the mixing of positive psychology in an educational uh, yes. setting. Yeah. Yes. So, so convince me or convince those who might be a little bit sceptical of a phrase like positive psychology. Yes. You know, in the, in, you know the, the, I guess the era, if you like, of self-help and all this. It, are you really, you know, it, what, what is positive psychology? Yes. Is it just about being happy? Is it about being positive all the time, turning the frown upside down in tough times? Like, <laughs> help, help, help me yeah. convince others that might be a bit sceptical as to what pos psych actually is. Yeah, and I think in the early days, so um, you know, twenty years ago, there was a lot of cynicism. It made the front cover of Time magazine with his big yellow happy smiling face, and we didn't really do ourselves any favors, I think. But we've come a long way. Uh, and I think, uh, particularly in the field, perhaps if you're new to the field, you might still see it as a potential happyology, mm. um, because often we still talk about happiness, but increasingly we realise that happiness uh, is referring more broadly to the concept of well-being and mm. psychological well-being, and to be a flourishing individual, which is the word we use uh, a lot of. It actually en encompasses the full range of human emotions. So happiness 
or joy, if you like, is just one part of that. And uh, emotions like fear and anger and sadness are normal and human. And if you didn't have them, it would possibly be something wrong with you as yeah, well. Right. Yeah, being yeah. happy all the time is an illness in itself, yeah, right? Probably. That, <laughs> that's right. But um, I recently heard Professor Alona Bonniewell, uh, who launched the European Positive Psychology Movement, uh, over in London and she said there are two things wrong with positive psychology, one positive and two psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, I think uh, in time we may not utilise that term. Yep. Um, and my hope is that psychology as a field will uh, will have been transformed. It had been, particularly as a clin- clinical psych myself, mm. I can attest to the fact that it had been very focused on deficit and treating people and we needed that. We, yep. we really did need it. We still need it. Yep. But... Uh, one of the, I guess, um, often positive psychologies you would know is defined as the science of well-being. But more and more recently, I've been trying to get people to understand it's actually the, the the best definition that we refer to is the science of the conditions and processes. The science of the conditions and processes that lead to optimal human functioning. Yep. So it's actually the science of us at our best. Yep. And it stands on the shoulders of the giants of humanistic psychologists such as Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers who spoke about self-actualization, the fully functioning individual. So I absolutely agree that we can utilise positive psychology to reduce mental illness, improve mental health and psychological well-being. But I think a lot of people forget we're talking about capability building. And I know we're going to talk about leadership soon, Mm. but this is capability for everybody Mm. to be our best selves. Yeah. And it, as you say, it almost sounds like it's limiting itself by those phrases, positive psychology, and the, and the phrase you put around it, the science of optimum... Optimal human function. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. in itself is almost, wow, okay. It's you know, that's almost limitless, you could yeah, imagine. That's yeah, that's right. It's much broader. Uh, and I think, you know, the other thing with positive psych is... Um, it had had been written off sometimes in one fell swoop, I often say, uh, when in fact it's very difficult to do that because it's an umbrella term which, as you and I know, encompasses a very diverse range of psychological constructs. Mm. Some of those constructs have a lot of research, like gratitude, and yep. I've just been to the International Postsite Congress in Melbourne, and I can tell you that the research has gone to another level in terms of the nuances around um cultivating gratitude, expressing gratitude, gender differences, age. So Mm. we're really learning a lot now. But there are other areas that uh, perhaps we need a little bit more research on before we can make blanket recommendations for the uptake. So, I mean, you've mentioned the word a little bit now, well-being. It's got a, you know, we've spoken a little bit about that. Why do you think well-being is getting so much attention at the moment why, why is everywhere I look and I know you're doing a webinar tomorrow called well-being in the workplace and yes. it seems whether I'm scrolling through my LinkedIn feed or whether I'm scrolling through a, or scrolling listen to me flicking through a, a, a <laughs> you know a magazine a leadership magazine well-being is there well-being yes. is there and it strikes me that maybe 20 years ago um you know, it wasn't. <laughs> Absolutely. So what, why why is there now this focus? What, why why do workplaces, um, why has it become such an issue in the workplace? Is it the nature of work's change? Is it the nature of the world's change? Yes. Are we just more aware of these things? What's your take on, I, on I this? I think there are multiple factors. I think there is the recognition and the term VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, is being used extensively in the corporate world. Mm. And I know in education sector we're talking about particularly senior high school students emerging into a VUCA world and being equipped to deal with it. So we know that the pace and rate of changes has never been as it is now. There are multiple challenges that we are facing as a society on Mm. this planet. We need all the skills that we can possibly have to face them. We have simultaneously the highest rates of mental illness um, on the planet. Uh, And I think 
you know, my what I'm observing is that people are starting to see uh, that you know that we can and we should be proactively, just like our physical health, um, being a bit more proactive around our our mental health as well. Uh, and you know, the business case. So there's a complementary field uh, called positive organisational scholarship, which really has for the last twenty years been solely focused on the application of positive psychological science in an organisational setting. And I've been watching that field since it first launched and in the early days it was very academic. If you go to the website now, I think it's Centre for Positive Workplaces or Positive Orgs, I get them mixed up. We'll we'll search that out and put it in the show notes. We'll definitely find that link. Fantastic. There are so many uh, practical examples you can actually apply as an organisation and I know Ballarat City Council are on there. I was surprised mm. to see an Australian uh, organisation on there and it had won an award right. in their application of the science yeah. to enhance wellbeing. And there's also a Gallup organisation who have done extensive uh, research on engagement and many people are familiar with that research. They've you know, fairly recently come out and have said that wellbeing is... Uh, you know, it can affect uh, engagement as well, as well. So that they're sort of differentiating well-being, they're separating them and saying that we need we need the well-being aspect to affect engagement as mm. well. So the business case is growing in an or particularly in an organisational setting, and it's very hard to argue with. Mm. So okay, let's say that um, you know I'm a leader of a of a somewhat you know well-functioning organisation. People aren't striking that they're not walking out so yes. things seem to be all right you know yeah. we're making our target so to speak and why should I pay more attention to the well-being and 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 of, of my team or of yeah. my employees and assuming that I will what are some of the things that leaders might consider in the workplace to, to boost well-being yeah definitely I think as I said it's hard to argue with the science and even just flicking through LinkedIn recently there's story after story of you know, quite well-known leaders of uh, LinkedIn and um, Microsoft and Google that are taking these types of approaches as well. And, you know, clear, well, not clearly, but there is research to show it impacts on the bottom line in terms of financial outcomes. And Professor Kim Cameron's one of the key scholars that's done a lot of that research. But I think it's also, it's, it's something that, given that we're spending a third of our lives at work, um, we want people to feel well. So I guess mm. we have a duty of care uh, and there's, uh, I guess, an OCH health and safety um, challenge around that as well. But it's, it's, I think it's the right thing to do. I think people are realising that it's the right thing to do is to equip uh, people at work with the skills to help them with their mental health, their wellbeing. And it really is a triple whammy. So these same skills, if you like, which can be taught and we argue should be taught mm. uh, in the first instance can improve mental health, well-being outcomes and productivity mm. and performance. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned they're a third of their life at work, but that doesn't take into account all the work they're doing when they're not at work, right? Absolutely. On their phones and on their emails just before they go to bed and things like that. So as a leader, yes. you know, I could imagine that one way I could boost well-being would be to put some beanbags in the staff <laughs> area and uh, maybe shout them a few beers yeah. on a Friday night. Um, what else, though, might a, you know might a leader consider when it comes to maybe more sustainable and, and probably more impactful well-being approaches yeah, absolutely and I think you know the first um, movement in the well-being and I know my colleague Michelle McQuaid often refers to it as the three f's the the fitness the fruit boxes and the flu shots I think yeah. you know and uh, look that's great that's a good start 
Um, but I think we're realising that there is an educational component to this. And, you know, personally, having run a number of these programs, both in schools but increasingly in the corporate sector, you know, most, and, and I'm talking about high-performing adults, have never learnt these basic psychological skills. Some of them may have them um, innately, and mm. we do see that. People are sort of doing it and then thinking, but doesn't everybody do that? And mm. then they realise, no, not everybody is like that, mm. and that these skills can be learnt, and that you know, we have scenarios where we have people turning up for our workshops, senior leaders, and their children are coming home from school where, where, where the scenario is that they are going to school, that are teaching these skills, mm. and the kindergarten children are teaching the adults mm. around mindset skills yep. that the adults don't have. So I think um, there's a lot of things you can do, and I know you wanted to unpack that a little bit more, but for me it starts with ed an educational component because mm. people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So give me what are, what are some of the most common things you see people don't know that they don't know? So when you say yeah. something, oh, do you know this, and it, you get blank stares it, back, what are the things which it, you, you see? Yeah, well, I guess particularly as a ClinPsych, you know, and in my early days of training, um, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy was the therapy of choice and it still is today one of our most evidence-based approaches. However, you wouldn't have accessed that sort of information uh, and these are basic mindset skills mm. until you came crashing down and went and saw the ClinPsych. Yep. If you were lucky enough to have an executive coach and not everybody does and not all executive coaches know or mm. apply these skills... Um, so the mindset, in just introducing the basic concept that you and I introduced to school children around ants, automatic mm, yeah. negative thoughts, yeah. and because I've done this for so long, I'm I'm still surprised at how people go, that's fabulous, yeah. the ants, never thought about that, yeah. and we all have ants, yeah. and did you know thoughts aren't facts, I've mm. never thought that before, yeah. so and these are high performing people yeah. that have never learnt these basic skills of firstly being aware of how we think and then there are various approaches in you know dealing with those thoughts if you like and of course there are newer wave approaches like ACT that are coming mm. in now that are also very successful um, in some instances quite simple strategies that can be taught and applied that can help again from a mental health perspective a well-being and a performance mm. perspective. What's your take on uh, mindfulness so being able to um, you know, focus on the here and now as opposed to worrying about what has been or what might never be. What, wh where yes. does that sit with your uh, with your work and, again, the reactions that you see when you go into workplaces and, yeah. and bring it up? Well, I think, again, over time, nowadays, it's, you know, it's most people have heard of it, mm. whereas when I was first introducing it probably over 10 years, a lot of people were looking at me like that's that... That's that Buddhist New mm. Age stuff. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about that. And, um, you know, sometimes people that have different religious affiliations mm. distance themselves from it. But I think, again, it's very hard to argue with the research. There's a significant amount of research that's been done on mindfulness-based therapies from a clinical perspective. So that's without question that it can help reduce stress um, depression, anxiety, there's a whole range of other psychological disorders. There are some contraindications, so it's, it's not always, doesn't always work for everyone. Mm. And uh, again, if you're seeking this uh, sort of approach clinically, if, you, if you're seeing a good therapist, they'll help you understand that. Mm. Um, but, you know, as your and my good friend, Professor Felicia Huppert, mm. refers to it as being the foundation of flourishing. So if you think about it, mindfulness very simply is having that capacity to be an observer 
of yourself, of your thoughts, of your feelings, of what's happening here in this moment and how somebody else might be feeling. And so then it has a huge impact on our capacity to regulate what's coming out our mouth, the types of thoughts we're having, the types of feelings we're having. And I just think the world would be so much better if everybody's mindfulness <laughs> went up one or two points. Yep. But again, it's we have to be uh, aware and be careful because there is a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. We're calling it Mac mindfulness. We're mm. seeing that happen. And I think we have What's to What's an example of Mac mindfulness? What, what? I, I think, you know, sort of rolling out um, often people that haven't done any formal training in it um, and then jumping on and attempting to teach others and not being aware of potential contraindications um, what, for what, people. Yeah, what might be a couple of contraindications? Yeah, so I think, it, well, this is possibly more in the, the clinical realm, mm. is sometimes a mindfulness can be used to be aware of, uh, of where we are, of sensing our physical body. And for some people, that's going to be more helpful to be more grounded, mm. whereas others might have some difficulties um, and might find that mindfulness takes them off too much in their head mm. um, and then it, you know there's a lot there's fear and anxiety that comes yeah. up with losing sense with being a sense of being grounded mm. so it's just something we have to watch yeah. um, but look again for the majority of people I think it's skill worth investigating at its very uh, basic I guess phenomena it's an attention training skill so as you and I know it's basically when your mind wanders you notice that it's wandered and you bring it back to your breath or some other form of uh, anchor, if you like. And that simple act of bringing it back again and again, it's just like going to the gym, lifting weights and mm. building that um, physical muscle. Every time you're practising mindfulness training, you're, you're building up your attentional muscle. Mm. But it can be so much more. For me, that's its very basic level. Yep. So for anybody, and again, in terms of the workplace, mm. And, you know, we still have the scenario with open plan offices and I know there's a lot of debate around <laughs> yeah. that. But right now, one of the key skills is attentional control mm. and being able to, you know, block things, that noise out, block activity out and being able to focus. So mindfulness training helps build up attentional control at its very basic. Yeah. So we, we've spoken a fair bit there about, you know, educating and bringing new concepts to the fore and bringing people w with us. Once we've got that, in terms of... Uh, have you seen um, any examples in, in organisations where you, you, you walk in and you go, yeah, they just get it. Like It's not so much that they can talk the talk, but they actually walk the walk in certain ways. What, what, what are some of the markers that you look for when you go and work with a group of people and you, you, these guys are just, they've got it? What, you what, mean they've been doing it for a while? Or? Yeah, or the way, yeah, and the way they are with each other, the way they, you know, the, yeah. way that op the way that group of people work together... You know, they, they get well-being, if yes. that makes sense. What are some of the things that you, you it, might see? Exactly. And you mentioned I'm doing a webinar tomorrow with the Starlight Children's Foundation. So they were the first organisation that we worked with that were willing to take more of a strategic approach. Mm. So we've worked with lots of organisations on workshops, series of workshops. We've done lots of leadership coaching um, and we've done a little bit of consulting but Starlight were the first organisation that said, let's do the whole kit and caboodle. And, but they've been... You know, trying to think how many years now, maybe six, eight years on, and they were already a fairly, I guess, positive and engaged organisation to start with. So for us, they were dream clients. Um, you know, I think also having worked with schools over many, many years, the smaller the organisation, generally it's easier. And mm. I'm not saying that in all cases, but I know we've had conversations with larger organisations and as you would know, there are subcultures that exist, there are cultural differences. So I think... 
it's you've got a much bigger challenge on trying to roll this out across an organisation. So, for ex- and I won't name any no. names, but there are a lot of organisations that have been for a while using strengths-based approaches. So, mm. strengths is one of the key approaches that we use in positive psych. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's certainly a key approach. So, I've been into a number of quite large organisations, but there's no strategy around it. And they're using multiple types of assessment, different, suppro- different approaches, different strengths language. Mm. Nobody's aligned um, so for me, an organisation that do, is doing this well, it's from onboarding right through to exit, there's a strategy around uh, concepts like strength, like mindset, like mindfulness. What does that look like in our organisation? What does that look like when you're onboarding? What does that look like through your development, through the organisation? What does that look like if you're a leader in team meetings and then right through to potential exit? And that sort of strategic approach takes time to implement and obviously the larger the organisation it may take even longer mm. to implement. Yeah for sure. Yeah. So a few of the things that you mentioned just then around the you know the, the career or the, 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 the journey through it through a, an organisation and sort of mirroring, mirroring that I guess with the idea of uh, PostPsych and being able to reframe from a deficit approach to optimum human functioning. Yes. You know I know that one of your other areas of uh, real passion is in coaching yes. and I, I'm I'm really interested in exploring the synergy between positive psychology and coaching. Yes. Not only, I guess, for positive uh, well-being, but also for performance. And, yes. You know, because I don't know, but I've come across a few people who seem to think, well, you can't have both. It's either or, you know, <laughs> like you, you either burn the candle at both ends to be the best you can be and, yes. you know, or, or you can have a pretty, yeah, you can have a nice life, but you're never going to get the most out of whatever you're capable of. So I'm, I guess I'm curious to hear from, from your point of view with the work and the research and the publishing that you've done around coaching and post-psych. What, how, how do they uh, play out best together, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. When I first started doing executive coaching back in 2004, I think it was, um, it was very, very strongly focused on performance outcomes mm, in yeah. coaching senior executives. I always used to introduce the concept of, I guess, well-being and mental health because that had been my background and possibly no surprise to you, but my colleague, Dr Travis Kemp, and I actually collected some data. Unfortunately, we haven't published it. We presented it at a conference, Mm. but we had 38% of executives and it was a a large Australian sample turning up for executive coaching, 38% suffering significantly high levels of psychological distress, Mm. which... You know, increasingly we're realising that even if you're a high performer, it doesn't mean that you don't have, uh, I guess, you know, challenges. Um, So I think, you know, over time there has been, as we spoke about before, uh, more awareness and more openness to explore wellbeing in the workplace. And I can tell you a fabulous example Mm. uh, of a program we've been involved with, with Accenture Australia and New Zealand, and we've actually just been the finalists in the Australian Psychological Society Leadership Development and Coaching Awards. We didn't win, but we're in the the finals. Um, And for me, it was a dream job. So the leader of the organisation... actually has a master's in applied positive psychology. Right. That's a nice start. <laughs> it was a great start. It doesn't tend to happen. I haven't mm. met anyone else at that senior level in business in Australia yep. uh, at this point in time who absolutely understands what I've been talking about for 20 years. Mm. And he wanted to introduce a leadership coaching program 
for his leaders and we're at the end of the second year and we're going into a third year next year and when I asked him what he wanted out of the leadership coaching program I was expecting you know performance improvements Mm. and he basically said to help them be better human beings Mm. never heard a CEO senior leader refer to that before and so they were given um, permission if you like to focus on whatever they wanted to and at the beginning of last year there was a lot of cynicism because Accenture are high performance delivered now I think Mm. is their their catchphrase and they're really they're a very (laughs) you know bunch of high performers so to have the senior leader say to them I know what the research says Mm. which he does Um, I know that if you work on your whole self, Mm. which includes your family life as well, and you being the best version of yourself, it's going to affect everybody around you through the social and emotional contagion effect and it's going to impact on productivity and it's going to impact on our organisation. So that's where I think we're heading into Mm. the future and I guess the term that's being used is this concept of third-generation coaching, which Tony Grant uses and Professor Reinhard Stelter out of Denmark, which is coaching that is to help people and um, particularly senior leaders develop a sense of meaning and purpose around what legacy do they want to leave before, what are the values-based conversations they want to have with people that are you know, spending a lot of their time at work, so much more broader than just performance per se. Mm. And what's your response to um, someone who might say, Susie, that's that's all sounds lovely, yeah. but I quite frankly don't have time for that because yeah. look at them, look <laughs> at my deadlines, look at my to do list. Yes, you know what, what's what's advice you might offer that particular yeah. person? And look, I've heard that before actually, mm. and uh, I, I recall at a time it was a, a table of senior leaders again, and instead of me responding, I asked the the, the rest of the table to respond, and they simultaneously came back with, "You don't." What is it? You don't not have time to do this, mm. like because it's going to save you time in in the long run. Particularly with um, coaching, I guess is a, for me that might be a good place to start. I, I I actually think the ideal scenario is some education around what the science is telling us about optimal human functioning, and then using coaching, particularly at the leadership level in the first instance, so that it can be transferred into the leader's everyday life so that people at work can see that they're actually walking the talk. And mm. we know Kim Cameron's work has shown that the energy, the positive energy of the leader, and that's not about being extroverted, mm. because they've actually in this research factored extroversion out of it. It's about how you show up with your people. Mm. Are you present? And this is where the mindfulness piece comes in. Mm. Do you validate someone else's perspective even if you don't agree with it? Mm. You know, so are you energizing people in your interactions or are you depleting them? So I think the first instance would be to perhaps start off with a brief introductory session around what is what does the science tell us? Mm. Um, and then if you've got any queries, I've worked with senior leaders before even though, you know, I've, I felt feel like I've explained the science. By morning tea, one of them said, yeah, but I still don't get this strength stuff because we can't not address people's areas for development. Mm. And I've had to say, uh, yes, <laughs> that's true and that's what we were actually saying. Yeah. So, But I think a good starting point is a, a brief intro, perhaps start with some uh, leadership coaching where you can start to make sense of it for yourself first as a leader Mm. and then as you start to see the benefits for yourself, not only will people simultaneously uh, benefit from that but then you hopefully will want to implement it and bring more of it into your organisation. 
Lovely. So if someone's listening to this and they're going, you know what, I want to bring some of that into my organisation yes. and I kind of like the cut of Susie's jib. Where would they find you online? What's the best yeah. place to find out more about your work and how to get in touch with you? Absolutely. The website's possibly the best um, first starting point yep. and then to email us at info at the Positivity uh, institute.com.au okay. and we're very happy to have a chat around... Uh, you know, where you're at, where you'd like to be um, and how and if we can help you. Yeah, lovely. So we'll put the links um, in the show notes there. So if you have um, found um, what Susie's had to say really interesting and, and think that um, there's some way that she can help you and your organisation, then head down to the show notes and there'll be links there. Before we go, um, I have to thank you, Susie, and um, I'm going to thank you, but some people might not because... If you've heard me speak publicly and not enjoyed it, if you thought, that, oh, he's full of it, then you <laughs> need to blame Susie because Susie was the first person who ever booked me to speak <laughs> at, a, at a small symposium at Sydney University. And uh, as a result of that, I sort of got maybe uh, ideas a bit too big. <laughs> absolutely not. It's been absolutely divine to see uh, what you're doing, Dan. And you really were an early adopter when you called and said, can you ha come and have a look at what we've done? I was blown away at what you've done and you're continuing to do amazing work and take it out to a much broader audience now. That's really nice of you to say. Thanks yeah. so much for joining us, Thanks, Susie. Dan. Cheers. If you found the conversation worthwhile, please like this podcast and also subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, maybe even comment on the podcast too, because doing all those things makes it easier for other people to find us. Also, if you'd like to get involved with the podcast, perhaps you've got a question you'd like us to consider in a QA episode, or perhaps a guest that you'd like us to interview, or perhaps you yourself would like to be a guest, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there. But until next time, thanks very much for listening and take care. Take it easy.